We uh, last week did a sermon on Thanksgiving, but we are no longer in Thanksgiving mode. We can't make any excuse for that. We are fully in Christmas mode now. So that brings us to Christmas sermons. Now, for me, that, that can have a bit of trouble because, honestly, Christmas can be a little bit boring. It can be. Debbie's shocked. She's shocked. <laughs> now, that shouldn't be the case, but we've, we've experienced a lot of Christmases. Some of you have experienced more Christmases than others. <laughs> but we do the same thing each year. We, we read very much the same passages. We have the same traditions. And the problem is that with all that repetition, sometimes Christmas can get a little dull. And as Debbie is utterly shocked that that should ever happen, now that is how we should feel as well. That the whole spirit of Christmas is that it is a surprise. That it is a shock. That people stand amazed at what God did in the incarnation, what he did at Christmas. And so... I would challenge us this season to reconnect with the surprise of Christmas, to be surprised by Christmas once again, that we would reconnect with the utter shock that God would become a man. Now that is, that is shocking, that God would be born, that he would have to eat and drink, he'd go to the bathroom. Now there are, there are Christian, so-called Christian cults, they cannot accept that fact. They refuse to accept it. It is too much of a surprise. It's maybe even uh, profaning God to say that he could ever do that. There's a surprise of Christmas. This is a shocking thing. And we ought to connect to that fact once again. And so this season, I hope that we are surprised by Christmas. We're surprised once again by what the Father did, the work of the Spirit, the humiliation of Christ. We are surprised by the angels and the miracles and the works that are happening. We're going to open our eyes and see these things fresh. So today, we are looking at the story of Zechariah from Luke chapter 1. So, turn there with me. Luke chapter 1. And we're going to be walking through much of the story. So keep your Bibles open. We'll, we'll walk through a lot of the story. There's a lot that happens in the life of Zechariah. So let's jump in starting with verse 1. In so much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. This is Luke's start to the story of Christmas. And I want us to see something in this. This is Luke. He's a, he's a doctor, actually, a physician. And he has laid out kind of how he has been an eyewitness. He has sought out the eyewitnesses of these things that have happened. Now, why do I say that? We need to see that these things are true. That if the Christmas story is just a fantasy, if it's something pie in the sky that we wish happened, then it is going to be boring because it's just another story. 
Luke makes it very clear in, in these few verses that this is true and it actually happened. These are not the ancient equivalents of, of once upon a time. Now, this is as definitively as you can say it. This really happened. He has done his research, and these are the accounts of Jesus. Now, that, that should be a surprise. And a lot of people don't actually believe that. So if we believe that, let's, let's read this story like it is true, because it is. All right, so with that beginning, Luke sets the stage for us in verse 5. In the days of King Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. All right, so the setting here is we find ourselves in the days of King Herod. King Herod. We can sum up this time as not a very good one. So he calls himself the king of Judea. He's not really a king. He's a, he's a puppet of Roman occupation. He's put there to, to do what Rome says. And he is known for being a corrupt, a cruel leader. Kind of the best thing about him is he does a lot of large building projects. But holistically, he is kind of almost insanely uh, vengeful and, uh, and self, I guess, self-centered and hell-bent on making sure that his rule is sustained. So this is a dark time for, for Judea, a dark time for Israel. And it's also 400 years after God's last prophecy. 400 years. That 400 years ago God spoke, but since he has been completely silent. Been completely silent. Now what is 400 years? All right. The America, the United States of America has been around 240 years more or less. This is a really long time. And so the people are starting to get discouraged. Where is God? And even more than that, Judea, this little strip of desert in the Middle East, has been juggled around between different foreign powers, between different kings and different rulers. And now here they are, occupied by Rome with a false king, and God has not spoken. That is our setting. <coughs> Judea has seen better times. All right. Verse 5. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, maybe this is the least surprising part of the story. The story of Christmas starts with a priest. It's, it kind of fits. It's kind of religious -y. And it's a, a priest and his priestess wife. So she's actually from the division of, of the priesthood of Aaron. So this is kind of a, a power couple here. These are good religious people, just who you'd expect for the Christmas story to come to. And there's something interesting about their names. So Zechariah, his name means God has remembered. And Elizabeth, her name means God's oath. So if we smash that together, their kind of celebrity mashup name is God has remembered his oath. All right, if there's one family, one couple, that is set to receive the promises of God, it is this one. They are ready to, to see the fact that God is remembering his oath. But there's a problem, verse 7. 
but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So these are dark days for Judea as a whole, but these are dark days for Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. They have no children, which in that, in that culture is, is a curse just as it is in this one. And so we can imagine what Zechariah's life must have been like. The monotony of going again and again to pray for this nation of Israel as they stand under occupation. They remain oppressed. That he prays day in and out for Elizabeth to receive a child, but she remains barren. To minister to a discouraged people in the midst of dark times. Now that is the life of Zechariah. It's a, it's a discouraging time. And maybe some of you can relate to, to being the religiously discouraged. It's been a long time since something really exciting happened, maybe. That you have seen God speak, you have seen God work. You have seen things get worse and not better. That there's been suffering. That's sort of what Advent is about. We join Zechariah in, in feeling that feeling. To feel that, okay, the times are hard. And we join him in waiting for those times to be renewed. But we also recognize that, that we are in a time of silence. We are in a time of waiting. That we are in anticipation of the second coming. That all of these promises that God has made towards us have not yet been fulfilled. We wait with Zechariah. So let's see verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And you must not drink wine or strong drink, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now one day Zechariah went into the temple and this is what happened. This is what happened. He's offering incense. Offering incense, that's a, that's a symbol of prayer. That the incense goes up and it's supposed to be a symbol that, that God hears and delights in the prayers of his people. So here he is offering prayers, as I'm sure he has before, as the people pray outside. And this time, God has heard the prayer. And he sends an angel down from heaven to basically tell Zechariah, you know what, I, I have heard your prayer and I'm answering it. The good news of Gabriel the angel. That God remembered this. The prayers 
First, for a son. He's remembered and heard that Zechariah has pleaded for a son and God is going to do it. He's going to give Zechariah and Elizabeth a child even in their old age. But there's a bigger promise going on here that that promise would also be a fulfillment of all of the prophecies of 400 years ago. That 400 years ago, or a few years before, was a prophecy of Malachi. A prophecy of a, a messenger who would call the people back to God, who would prepare the way for the Lord, who would come in the spirit of Elijah and call the people to repentance. So here is this angel basically saying, you know, all of these things you've been waiting for, they're happening right here and right now. The time of waiting has ended. Now the strange part of this story is that the Christmas story does not begin with Jesus. It begins with John the Baptist. We get kind of tripped up on that. Why does it start with John the Baptist? Well, the thing is that you have to be ready for Jesus. John the Baptist is there to prepare the way because otherwise, no one would really understand why he was coming. We'd miss the fact that this is actually such an amazing thing. Because Jesus comes, he's, he's kind of the positive one of the two. Throughout scripture, he's kind of like the, the fun, exciting, hangs out with the, with the partiers. That's Jesus. But before you could have that, first you have to have John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the downer. Right? He's the, he's the aesthetic. He lives out in the desert, wears camel hair. He's kind of the miserable one of the two. But you need John the Baptist. Why do you need John the Baptist? Because the gospel only makes sense if you know why you need it. John the Baptist basically comes to the people and says, you know, you've been screwing up for a really long time. You've been sinning. You've been rebelling from the Lord. You actually do need this Savior. So when we hear about things like this Advent, like about joy and hope and peace, these aren't just kind of like warm, fuzzy concepts that we generally like and are like, oh yeah, like we, we all love peace and hope. No, these are, these are real tangible things that people in a fallen world need. And John the Baptist is opening our eyes to that truth that we need these things in a fallen world, that this is a world of, of hatred and war and misery, not joy and hope and peace. Now, I would say that we don't have much of a place for John the Baptist in our Christmas. And I think that might be what part of the reason why Christmas can get kind of boring. It's because Jesus is all fuzzy and fluff, and we forget the reason for his coming, that we are actually in desperate need of him, that we have been waiting and waiting, that we have been oppressed, that we have been lost in our sin, that John the Baptist calls us back to that. So we need to get creative. Maybe we need to create some traditions for John the Baptist, some times for us to think about why we need Jesus, to repent, to speak of, of our thankfulness for why Jesus came we can get so lost in the, in the fun of Christmas that we miss kind of the point of it in the general. Now, John the Baptist, he's calling us to repentance and he's calling us to prepare for the Lord. 
to prepare for Jesus. And in our second coming, in the second coming of Jesus, the thing that we wait for, we are called here and now to be prepared. To be prepared for the coming of the Lord. That is the message of John the Baptist. I would ask, are we ready for Jesus, Jesus Christ's second coming? Are you ready for him to come? Are you ready to enter into a sinless world? I feel kind of sinful for a sinless world. Are you ready to, to worship God as kind of your, your top priority? Are you ready to serve God as, a, as the exclusive king? Are you excited to do that or are you resentful towards that? That is the kingdom that's going to come. And what do you think? Are we ready to participate in that kingdom? Have we given up our sins to Christ? Are we ready for his coming? Do we trust that he has paid for them? And then we carry them no longer. Now I would say that Zechariah maybe wasn't ready to hear the message of this angel. He didn't seem to be ready. You might expect him to have responded differently if he were ready. How would we expect this priest to respond to the good news of the angel Gabriel? Well, he knew the, the prophecies of Malachi. I'm sure he knew them. He should have responded by some sort of excitement, rejoicing that finally this day has come. But it seems that he, he didn't. He probably should have remembered the, the story of Abraham. That this story has kind of already happened before. The story of, of two old people being blessed with a son. That's Isaac. That's the start of the nation of Israel. God already did that. He should have responded in faith. And seen that, that yeah, of course God can do that. He's already done it. But how does he respond? Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. My wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Zechariah does not rejoice. He does not thank God. He doesn't praise God. Instead, he, he questions God. And we might have trouble with the question. We're like, well, the, the question seems innocent enough. And in and of itself, the question is innocent enough. The same question is asked by Abraham when he received that promise. In just a, a couple verses later, Mary pretty much has that same question. And so it's not the question itself. It's that behind that question was doubt and was skepticism. He heard it and he just didn't believe it. There's a tone you can ask with a question. He could have asked, well, how, how could this be? Or he could ask, uh, how, how could this be? There's a difference. So we get kind of tripped up on the language and we're like, whoa, is it fair that he asked the question? Should he have said? He didn't believe. He didn't believe the message that he was supposed to hear and hear with rejoicing with praise. Now we wonder, why didn't Zechariah praise God at hearing these words? 
Maybe he was discouraged from 400 years of silence. Maybe he knew all of these stories, but they felt kind of removed back in the past. That yeah, yeah, God used to do all this crazy stuff, but, but now he kind of just leaves us alone. He could have thought that. He could have thought that, that maybe God is a little different than he was back then. The surprise of this story is that the priest, who should have known better, this very religious, very knowledgeable person, who should have been the first person to receive the promises of God and believe them, he can't and he doesn't. He fails to believe. That's where this story is. It's not just kind of like for the religious people that they know so much and, and of course they'll receive the message. No, this is first of all an indictment against religious people. That the people who are supposed to know so much, the Christmas story is a surprise to them as well. And the Christmas story ought to be a surprise to us and a challenge to us as well. When we see this story, we need to see that we, like Zechariah, can have a lot of knowledge, but not actually a lot of faith. We can know all the things that God is supposedly able to do, but then not actually believe that he will do it. We can offer up prayers and, and kind of throw them out, but as tokens, not expecting him to actually answer them. Or we talk about the second return of Christ, and it's kind of a hypothetical or maybe even we, we have lost any kind of hope or expectancy, our eagerness at his coming. I would challenge us that Christmas holistically, holistically is a reminder that God makes good on his promises. That yes, there is time of waiting and waiting and serving and serving. But one day Christ will come. For Zechariah, that came, that they came, and it was a great surprise to him. And we who wait for Christ now, it'll be a surprise to us as well. Now, we do not know the day or the hour. We do not know the year of Christ's return. One of the things I dislike about all the like left behind series and those sorts of things is that it makes it sound like a lot of things have to happen before Christ comes. I would say that the, the Bible points us more towards the fact that, no, he will come like a thief in the night. That he could come today. There is no reason he can't come today. That every day we could literally just, there he could be. And everything will have changed. The world will be different. Every day we can live with that sort of hope and expectancy and excitement that Christ will surprise us and he could come. Now that is exciting. And that gets a certain kind of excitement about Christmas that we're, we're waiting for that day to come, but we're really waiting for, for that day to come. The day of the Lord for him to return to us and bring with him all of this joy and peace and hope tangibly and real and everlasting. That is what we look forward to. And that's what we prepare for. We live this life preparing for that day.
preparing for the hope and joy and love of Christ. Now the reality is that when Christ comes again, he's not just going to come with all fluffiness. He comes to those who have repented, who have prepared their hearts. For those people, he has abundance of mercy and grace and love and joy. But for those who have not prepared, who have not heeded the warning of John the Baptist, there will be judgment. There's a harder side to Christmas and there's, there's a harder side to his second coming as well. And we need to ask ourselves, are we ready? Are we ready for his coming? When he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will you meet him with, with faith or with doubt? Will you meet him with excitement or with fear? Now, Zechariah, he seemed to have met Jesus with, with doubt. No, not Jesus, but, but Gabriel, the message of Christ, with doubt. And he is judged as a result. He is judged with silence. He's judged with an inability to speak until he has the faith that he should have had in the beginning. Look at verse 57. So we're jumping a bit. 57. So Elizabeth, she, uh, she did conceive and she, <laughs> he has been silent this whole time. It's 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is, named, is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Now thankfully, we have this time of waiting so that we can receive faith in the things that have been promised. Zechariah did not understand at first. He did not believe. But he does come around. And when he gives his, his son this name, John, He's expressing faith that Gabriel is actually doing what is true. That is his act of faith. And it's fitting because what does the name John mean? John means God is gracious. He's able to see the grace of God. He's able to receive it. He's able to look to the fact that, yes, he doubted once, but now he believes. And at that moment of his belief... When he receives the grace of God, that judgment is over. That judgment turns to praise. Silence turns to praise and to worship. To, to blessing the God who has been so merciful, who has remembered his oath. Now, how does that help us in our time of waiting? We are waiting for the second advent. We are waiting for Christ. Now, I would charge us that we also stand under judgment. 
we stand under the same judgment that Zechariah did, that we have, we have doubt in our hearts. We do not trust him as we should. But we look to the grace of God. And we look to that grace of God as found in Jesus Christ. That John was even a representation of that grace. That we are offered the, the opportunity to repent and turn. Now that is unique to the gospel. There would be no need for John the Baptist if there is no forgiveness. There would be nothing to, to repent into. You already sinned and you're done. But no, even the judgment of John the Baptist is full of grace. That we have the opportunity to turn, to look to Christ and his mercy. I would call us to, to prepare ourselves well for the coming of Christ. So that when he meets us, we'd be ready to praise and to rejoice. Let us live as if God is the God that we actually believe in. That he is a God who does miracles. He does things that surprise us. And that he is a God who is faithful to come again and bring with him the joy and hope and peace and love that is promised in Christ because of his first coming on the cross. We look forward to his second coming and we can receive him with joy.